at in here. It's an incredible narrative from the second volume of Dr. Luke, who gives incredible detail about the, the life of Paul the Apostle. The last time we were discussing this, which was actually already three weeks ago, basically, we were talk, looking at the, we were looking at the Christian church and the Christian Jews that had petitioned Paul to go through this process of being a Nazarite and, and confirming this Jewish purification to prove to the Judaizers and those outside of that circle that he was not trying to abrogate or he was not trying to tear apart the law, but he was trying to confirm it, he was trying to show how Christ fulfilled it, and he had done nothing to hurt the temple. But he's falsely accused of something extremely important here, and we're going to see what it's like, as we can see us around here today in America, what happens when society is then is controlled by mob rule? What happens when the mobs get together and the mobs go after people that are doing what's right and then become part of absolute polity and, and, and the political nature? We're going to see that this morning. So let's go to Acts 21. We're going to read verse 27 to 40. And then we'll be finishing out here, Lord willing, um, chapter 21. And we're going to see... Go forward with Paul. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. They laid hands on Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the law and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city of Tro I'm sorry, with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved. And the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee, who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days madest an uproar and ledest out in the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man, which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a city of no mean city, and I beseech thee, or he says, I beg thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people, and when there was much, made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, and at the end of this chapter, we're left with a cliffhanger. What is he saying? 
I, for one, read this chapter 22 over and over and over again because what he says is so incredibly brilliant and it's incredible. Every time you read the response that Paul has, you will find something new that he was incorporating into his reifying of the gospel. He was incorporating every component he can think of to show them that he did nothing to defame the law but that he was trying to show them you defame the law because you take the law and you cut Jesus Christ out of it. You put him all the way over here like he doesn't matter and you keep the law with Moses, you keep it with Abraham, but you have nothing to do with Christ. And this is what this whole problem is about. Christ is being taken completely out of all of religion here. That's what's happening. The Judaizers are wicked. They hate Paul, they hate Christ, they're the Sadducees, they're the Pharisees. And so you can see this unending alliance between these Judaizers and Rome. And it's amazing how many decades Rome has always been in the middle of so much, so, so much political power. There's a lot of political power there. But it's amazing how Christ uses Rome with Claudius Lysias and then all these other, to protect Paul, they're the ones that save him from being killed. And it's incredible how the Lord uses different people to carry out his providence. And here's what happens. Paul was well received here in Jerusalem. There was an elderly gentleman named Manasseh of Cyprus, and he would have known Cyprus, they'd probably known Barnabas, because that was Paul's old partner and cohort. They were from Cyprus, it was a small area. And he was a sole disciple who had asked Paul to lodge with him. And there were many, as we spoke about the last time, that loved Paul staying with them. They loved to have this Christian man who loved the Lord be with them. Who were some of the other ones that wanted him to lodge with them? They were all together. Does anybody remember from the last lesson? Anybody remember? There was a former deacon. There was uh, a prophet. There was a handful of prophets, actually. I'll give you a hint. There were some prophetesses, female prophets. That's a tough one. Say that four times. Well, that was Peter way back. Yeah. Philip and his four daughters. There was Agabus the prophet. And they all loved him. They were all ready to go and die with him. So Paul pulls himself away from them once again being the superhero that he is, just like how he left Asia Minor, he left those people back there. And remember, when he left them, they were crying on his shoulder, basically wrapping their arms around him, and they couldn't stand to see him go. That's how they loved him so much. But Paul had said, it's, it's basically, it, it's, it's, it's time for me to go. It, it must needs me that I need to go, because there's so much absolute toxic attitudes amongst the people your churches are going to be greatly sought after. And now we know that that's true because the very Jews that pursue him outside of Jerusalem, around the Jer Jerusalem proper here, they were from Asia Minor. They were from Ephesus. They were from the very churches that Paul had come from, and they were keeping an eye on him. Paul is seized. He's held captive. And here is a very, very important application that I think... I love to use like kind of examples in order to kind of burn this into our hearts because these are some of the most important things you will ever learn in your life. I know they are for me. 
because this is all a lead-in to how the gospel of Christ has been preserved all through the ages and how Christ is alive, all the false gods are dead, and how we, can, we have an, an absolute wonderful resurrection because of our Savior. And this is what Paul is trying to make it very, very plain. Basically, we see here that Paul was approached by these Christian Jews. He's on his apostolic commission. He has great patience with the elders and the Christians, and he goes to their churches and he helps them. And he was so far from being now the venomous Judaizer that he used to be, you have to remember, he was one of them. And now he's a Christian, and he loves the Lord. And he, he, was, he, he was trying to bring them a good report, and the, the Christians welcomed him in. They, they all worshiped together. And sometimes when we're, when we're going, and we're going to minister with others, we need to be patient. And you can see the patience that Paul had because of all the different people that he visited and what he did. You know, James 1.4, um, could someone look up James 1.4 and read that, please? And, and also Romans chapter 15, verse 5, if someone could read that also. And we, we, one of the things is we're heading into this tidal wave of disdain and hate towards Paul. I want you to notice that he had the patience of Christ all the way through this, and he never once cracked. Paul never cracked. The rest of them did, and they all came unglued, but he did not. All right, James 1.4, please. That can be very different. I mean, difficult for us. It says... Thank you, Dave. It says, let patience perform her perfect work, not his. Men are, by nature, not very patient. We're, we're, we're fixer-uppers, and we like to solve problems. Women have a far more brilliant patience than a man could ever even imagine. And James says, let patience perform her perfect work. And we could see Paul doing this. Anyone have Romans 15.5? Perfect. Thank you, Jim. Uh, look at that. The, 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 God, the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded. And, and this explains, it, if you're reading this and you love this, this, ex, this explains some of the many incredible attributes that our Lord actually has. You know, there's many out there that say that the God, oh boy, if you study Martin Luther before he got saved... And the monastic, the monastic orders that he tried to follow and all of the physical things he tried to do in order to be saved and to try to make himself feel comforted. He was actually asked one time, before all of this, before he really came into, it came into studying and, and theological training and all the work that he did after, after he got into the book of Romans and became a Christian. I don't know if any of you know this, but he was asked, he was asked specifically by another, I think it was another theologian, can't remember who it was now, do you love God? You know, guess what his answer was? Do I love Him? He goes, sometimes I hate Him. I hate Him because of what He's done to me. I can't do anything to please Him. And that's what you're going to think if you try to do it without Christ. Your whole life will be, I promise you, in front of the mirror, when you strip away all of the uh, false appearances and all of the way you try to appear so comforted like these people do on television, all, 
When you get by yourself and you're alone, you are a miserable human being if you do not have Jesus Christ there who's part, who is all of your righteousness. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You have all, we have all sinned and, and come short of the glory of God. But our righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. And when Martin Luther, that was revealed to him and the Lord pulled him in and chose him, the rest of his life persecuted. He was the most joyous man that... And he, he suffered. He saw people suffering and had a hard time, but he had peace in his soul that Christ was there for him. That Christ was the consolation, the comfort walking beside him. Paul was seized. He's held captive. There's a lot of ways of, oh, there's a, a lot of ways of taking this application and using it in Scripture. And I was listening to a message a few weeks ago, and this message was so brilliant. There was just one little part, and I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to use this in, in this lesson. And basically the lesson is, in this very exact, um, in this very exact uh, part of this text, remember when Christ said, remember when He said back in Luke chapter 1940, and He answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And remember the people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord. And the Jews said, you better tell your disciples to stop doing that and stop claiming that. And he said, hey, if they don't do it, the rocks will cry out. Look at what the rocks are telling us here through what's happening to Paul. There's a real lesson to be learned about the rocks crying out here. We, all, we already know that we've talked about this many times. How do the rocks cry out to us today? Walk through a cemetery and start reading some of those old, really wonderful old, old, old granite or whatever uh, tombstones, and you'll find a lot of good Bible verses, endless Bible verses. And I don't care what cemetery you go to, you will find them. They are, they are there. And the rocks cry out, and they declare the name of Christ. They do. Look how the rocks cry out of the sacrifices and punishments of our Lord and His faithful servant Saul of Tarsus. Christ was tied to rocks, stone pillars for scourging, taken to the mountain of the skull, Golgotha, which were these massive-shaped stones like a skull. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was honed out of stone or rock that housed the body of our Savior, then he walked right through the wall of that rock when he resurrected and they took another rock and they rolled it away and they looked in and that rock revealed that Christ had resurrected. When they pulled it away, his body was gone. All they found was a couple of, was, was, was a, 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 a remnant at his head and a remnant at his feet and it showed that he had resurrected and the rocks revealed that. How about the stone that was rolled away? That sealed the tomb, and it revealed an empty tomb. These were the stones of Jerusalem. And now, exactly 27 years later, the stones now will reveal another faithful servant of Jesus Christ and show and have a story to tell. The stone, we see stones found years later by archaeologists before we go to Paul. Another stone cried out, and they found an inscription made by a Roman soldier mocking the crucifixion of Christ with a cross, with a stick figure cross with a head of a jackass on it called Alexa Menos. And basically it was a, it was a way of that this one soldier mocking the soldier that said, truly, this was the Son of God. And they found that inscription hewn in stone. Blasphemous, horrible. 
Look it up. Read about it. But it was the first representation and perfect proof that Jesus Christ was on that cross. And it, and it stands in the museum over in Palestine. That exact, that exact piece of that uh, carving is still over there and you can see it. Hewn in stone. The rocks are still crying out about our Savior. What about Paul? There were stones for Jerusalem. We see here how the stones of Jerusalem regarding Paul, Saul's old life, we see the beginning of Saul of Tarsus standing there holding the cloaks of Stephen who was being what? Stoned. They were throwing rocks at him. And this is where we first see Paul the Apostle. Right now he's still a Judaizer and he's about to get the biggest lesson anybody can ever get on the face of this earth. He's about to go from being a powerful Roman and Judaizer to a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's holding the cloaks. And we're going to see here in the next chapter, he says that and he goes back and he reminds everybody how horrible that he was. And that he was a Jew and he was a Judaizer. So the stones were being hurled at Stephen. And then the stones now back in Jerusalem. They now, as we end this part of the message later on, Paul is then standing on the stone stairway of the castle when he stands up amongst the Judaizers and the Romans and he starts giving a speech after being brutally beaten. Look how the stones cry out. And look how all down through the stones of Jerusalem, boy, what a story they have to tell. And the Lord said, they'll cry out. You won't speak my name. You won't be a witness of me. You won't tell others about my gospel. I'll get the stones to do it. And isn't it amazing how the Lord calls those people that will not, that, that reject Him, reject His Son and will not preach the gospel, stone-hearted? Their hearts are like stone, like Pharaoh. We see Paul's participation in the Nazarite purification is over with. We, we go forward here. Paul now is speaking in Hebrew. The crowd calmed down because that's the language they understood, showing that these were all Jews later. They calmed down, but first it was really bad. And it was when the Romans took over. We see here that Paul would then talk about the Pharisaical and the Sadduceical differences. We'll see that in the next chapter. Here Paul was in danger of being pulled into pieces by the Jewish council, and I can confidently call this, when you see the Judaizers and the riots in the street and you see the Romans, that is democracy. That is democracy 2.0. Mob rule. And I hate it whenever we watch these, these fraudulent elections. And even on Fox News, they call it democracy 2020. Yeah, they're right about that. But that's not how our Constitution was formed. It is a democracy now. We see that Paul had presented absolutely no crime. Paul was in danger of being pulled to pieces, and they grab him. You see in verse 27, verse 28, and verse 29, they pull him. Hundreds of people scurry around to grab one man. And here they have this high veneration for the holy place, for the temple, a building, and they have no regard for life. All the city was moved as the men of Israel, and they come out and they say, the Jews cry out, to all the other Jews there, no matter whether they were Christians or not, help us. There's hundreds of these men crying out, help, what, help them for one man? Why was Paul, why was one, one man such a threat to a multitude of these mob-ruled people that wanted him killed? Why? Anybody? Why was he such a threat to them? 
Right. Sure. Perfect. And here is the problem. People were following it. Thousands. It says, we read several verses before that, thousands of people were following this Jesus Christ. And they didn't like that. So they pulled Paul into the temple. Well, we see the violence. We see there was an old complaint back in the Old Testament that, that describes this, and then it's actually described many times. Psalm 79, verses 1 through 3. Could someone look that up and read that, please? Psalm 79, verses 1 through 3. And this is what happened to the Christian church in the Old Testament. There were many that they were slaughtered and just left on the side of the road, none to bury them. Their blood they shed like water. And this has never changed down through the ages for the Christian church. The holy temple we read here had been defiled. It's amazing how the Jews showed so much adoration for the temple. They showed so much adoration for the stone-whited sepulchers filled with dead men's bones. But they hated Paul. So they go after the temple. They say that he defamed it. They said that he blasphemed the temple. And so basically they come back and then they say something else. And we read like in, it was 27, it was verse 28, Trophimus. Did anybody catch that? When we were reading that, if you've been hopefully studying this during our class, Trophimus. Isn't it amazing how basically what they've said, here's a, here now what the, the evidence that they're using against Paul, which was fraudulent evidence, just like with Christ's kangaroo court arraignment, where he had done nothing wrong, and they tried to bring up insurrection against him. They said, we believe we saw Paul take Trophimus into the temple. But they never saw him, did they? You study this, and you even look at the writings of Eusebius and Josephus, Trophimus never went into the temple. It said that all they really saw him, the physical evidence that they had, is they saw him speaking to Trophimus back in Asia Minor and in the streets. He never went into the temple. What does that mean? Why is that such a problem? Why is that to think of the name Trophimus? Why is that a problem? Why would it have been a problem for him to enter into a temple? Anybody? He's Greek. He's a Gentile. First of all, if you are a Gentile, you can enter into the court of the Gentiles, where the way many of the temples were set up. You go into the court of the Israelites, into the priests, and you're not a, and you're not one of them. That was capital punishment. You would be killed for going into that area. And they, they held it at such a high regard, it had gone, look at the progression, and see if you can weave that in. Maybe you all could bring up something that, that, that the Lord lays on your heart to show evidence of that today. But look at the transition back in the days of old, in the Old Testament, where the Lord had the sanctuary for the Jews out in the wilderness, and He wanted them. In Exodus 5, verse 1, He said, You tell Pharaoh, My name now is the Lord of Israel, I am the God of Israel, and I want my people let go so that they can worship Me in the sanctuary out there in the wilderness. 
And at that point, from that point forward for centuries, there was a high regard and a respect for the ark, for the testimony of God. But all of it pointed to the Lord. There was idol worship, and it got worse. But here now you see the, tradition, the, the tra- transitioning from worshiping Jehovah now to worshiping the ritualistic items in the temple. And that's what they were concerned about. They were concerned about the altar, the walls of the court of the priests, and all of these things. They didn't even care about honoring God and the moral law. What they were doing here is they were talking about Paul violating the law, and they wanted to kill him. They woke up right after the sixth commandment. They had no problem murdering him. He never even had due process. He had absolutely no proper arraignment or anything. And this is why he gets up and he says, Can I finally speak? Can I say something about myself? You're all saying that I'm an Egyptian. You're saying that I'm a murderer. You're saying I'm this and I'm that and the other thing. Can I please speak? (coughs) The question is, under what conditions did he want to speak? The holy temple had been defiled. You know what this reminds me of? There was the same adoration for the temple of Diana. Remember that? They cared about Diana's temple and the artifacts. They could have cared less about God himself or anything that's true. Do you see that today? Anybody have any examples? You see that where basically the buildings are worshipped and there's no, you don't even see anything about hearing things about what the Lord says about the law and about his wrath? It's everywhere. I mean, it's, it's just about in every false religion out there, it's just nothing but money, it's all nothing but bread and circuses, it's all happy clappy churches and all this stuff. And basically today, to, to look at God's law and to look at what God expects of us as Christians, that's all, but that, that's, it's so far, few and far between. This is what Paul's going through. Although there's an uprise with the Christian church, it's incredible. So they pulled Paul into the temple. It's amazing how the Jews had showed so much adoration for the temple. But you know, you know, and I forgot to write down the verse. I think it's in Psalm 70. I think it's one or two. But you know, what you see here is what Satan loves more than anything else. And it's what you see. You can take this and plug it right into our Congress. Plug it right into our local General Assembly. Plug it right into the White House and everything. Satan loves what God hates. He loves confusion. And David prayed on his knees and begged the Lord, Lord, please keep me from confusion so that I don't, so I don't understand your precepts and your laws. And I'm paraphrasing that. But he prayed for the Lord to, in his older age to keep him from being confused, to stay the course and to keep his eye on that mark and to keep his eye on the truth, because he had been led into confusion many times, and he had fallen many times. And Paul, here we see that the people, the Jews now, in the present day, are in such confusion, they don't even know who God is anymore. And Paul's job was to bring them back, and to show them who Christ is, and who God is. So they drug him furiously out of the temple. They took him into the temple, and they took him out of the temple. Why do you think they took him out of the temple? What if God were to raise fire? I think they were afraid. I think these Jews and these rulers, they knew the Old Testament. And they knew that Paul honored God. They did not want any problems with fire coming down on them, possibly. What if Paul would have went in and grabbed the horns on the altar and cried out to the Lord? They would have been afraid of something like that. And they wanted him, oh, for whatever reason is, this is only my opinion, 
they got him out of that, that temple immediately. They may have pulled him from the altar, spoke to him, and thought that he had encouraged them, that he would encourage them to do what is right. They continue to accuse him. Satan's the great accuser. They continue on occasion to accuse him of everything, even bringing Trophimus into this and saying that he brought a, a wicked, they think a, a wicked, absolute, filthy Gentile into their precious temple. I see how Paul immediately kept his distance. And he does whatever they tell him. He, he, he had held, he had, he, they, they had held Paul and then they brought him out. And basically, of all of this, Paul had absolutely no fear of the riots and the crowds. He never once turned his back on Christ. And it's incredible that even his fellow Jews are now adversaries against him. And here we can see it confirmed in Psalm 104, verse 4, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. And in Psalm 119, 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from thy commandments. And these are verses to back up the fact that Paul never flinched. And the other verses we read in Psalm 79 show how they made the blood of the Christian church like water, and it ran out. So in the midst of all the pulling and the prodding of Paul, getting him out of the court of the Gentiles, along with the other courts in the temple, they got him out, they pulled him out, they didn't want him there, and they grabbed him. The council, they brought him out, we see how they didn't want him there, and they accused him of going in there and before and taking Trophimus and doing what's wrong. So Paul is about to be ripped to shreds. What does it mean when we read that he was born? B-O-R-N-E. What does it mean when they grabbed him? The chief captain, Claudius Lysias, grabs Paul from the Roman army. What does it mean that he was born? Right. It was so bad, they were grabbing him to try to tear him to shreds. He was already beaten, so now when he gets ready to stand up on the stairs and talk, um, one rendition, one of the messages that I've heard a few weeks ago, uh, uh, one of the accounts was, there was no doubt that Paul would have been standing there getting ready to talk after. They're holding him up in the air. His face is probably so swelled up now because they beat him. He's got open wounds and he's got blood all over him. He was probably almost hard to basically even identify. He had been beaten hard. And this is one of the reasons why the chief captain, Claudius Lace, picks him, pulls him out, the chief captain, away from the Jews. So here's a question, and I think it's worth discussing for a couple of minutes. Think about this. The Judaizers have Paul. He's in the temple. They drag him out and they beat him. And that's one of the reasons they took him in there. And they beat him. When the chief captain from the Romans wants to be the now, he wants to be the man in charge and he wants to save Paul's life, why did they detain him again? Why was that? Think about it. Think about what happened to Jesus. Why did they take him? I mean, you could see that there's hundreds. If this was a cohort, and it says actually there were more than 200, this was a, more than a cohort of Roman soldiers, which would be no less than two to 300 soldiers. One man, why did they take him out of the hands of the Judaizers? And it says they shackled him, and they chained him, and they put, and they put chains around his wrists. Why? Why didn't they just let him go? He hadn't done anything wrong. He proved it. Why? Because they... Go ahead, Delisi. Yes, it was their way of protecting them, but there was another part of it too. They wanted to show who had the real power. They take Paul, 
And they say, no, we've got them. Judaizers, shut your mouth. What happened when Pilate started to identify the inscription over Christ when it says, King of the Jews? And the Jews came back and says, no, I'd rather you say now, Pilate, that he said and he called himself the King of the Jews. What was Pilate's response, remember? (coughs) That's right. What I've put there, don't touch it. That was a power play showing what what had Pilate already said. I find no fault in this man in the court of Herod. I find no fault in this man at all. Nothing. And then he still holds this reign, this power. This is democracy in its, in, 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 its, in its greatest form. It's mob rule. And what's right does not matter. It's what's popular that matters. And you have to follow it all the way to the bank account. That's where it always starts. It was all about money. See, you have to ask the question, why didn't the Roman Empire want to just stomp on the Judaizers and get rid of them when they were nothing but troublemakers? Because they got a cut of the action at all the feasts. When all the animals were brought in and they got 50% of the money and they, got, and they had to bring in and they had to change their currency, Pilate, the governors, Felix, Agrippa, all the way down the line, Festus, they all got a cut. And it fueled all their big palaces and all the stuff that they had. Boy, does that sound familiar today, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound familiar? You think this is ancient, archaic, and it's just some old myth and legend that has nothing to do with today? America is Rome. All It's the Roman Empire all over again. With Caesar, with Felix, with Claudius, Lucius, all these, same thing. Even the shepherd, I'm sorry? Yes. Go follow the money, that's right. Pride. Even the shepherd, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, could call out the evil dogs. Isn't it amazing that, the, that Paul the Apostle's life is spared by the Romans? And that's exactly what happens here. And as we move forward, we see that the chief captain comes to rescue Paul. And in my opinion, this last part of this message, it even heightens even more. The chief captain comes to rescue Paul. And it's to take Paul's case out of the hands of the Judaizers and into the Roman courts, out of the courts of the Jews. Notice again, the Jews do not retaliate. It's fascinating how rioting is intense now. Paul has been beaten already by the wicked Judaizers and the chief captain retains more than a cohort of band of soldiers to take Paul and then they chain him. Not that he's not already in agony. He's already been beaten. He's bloody, he's swelled, he looks bruised, he's in horrible condition, and they still throw those horrible shackles. Where's he going to go with 300 bands of soldiers? They did the same thing to Christ. What was he going to do? Well, we know what Christ was capable of doing, but he wasn't going to do it. But this is what they do. Show their power. Paul is detained. He's carried overhead in the castle so that his body would not be torn to shreds the rest of the way. And this is the hate that the mobs have for Christ. But you know, whenever things get bad and you look around you, these are the verses I always remember when I'm watching all this stuff and I hear, see these billboards and there, people crying out for Biden, people crying out for this, this thing, Westmore, who came out of nowhere. And you sit there as a Christian and you're like, why, Lord? My soul is also sore, sore vexed. But how long, O oh Lord, as David said in Psalm chapter 6, 
How long? How long do we have to watch this stuff? And you remember what Christ said. Whoever gets to read these verses is a great blessing. John 15, verses 19 to 23. Somebody look that up and read it, please. John 15, 19 to 23. This is the answer. Twenty two and twenty three, please. If I had not come if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. Ooh. Ouch. You don't want to hate the father. <laughs> and Christ said, You hate me, you hate the father. And that's truth. That is unbridled, perfect, absolute truth and i would bet my eternity on it that's truth he that hateth me hateth my father also and so all these people out there say i love god i love god you know the muslims and the, and all the, all these uh non-messianic jews and all i love god but jesus christ is nothing he may not have even existed you hate me you hate the father that's what it all comes down to and the thing that got christ physically in trouble that he had ordained in John 10.30 was, I and my Father are one. That's it. And this is what Paul's proclaiming here. Paul knew this. He knew that Christ went through this, then he was ready to be persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ. Are we? Acts 21.13, after he was told by the prophets that he was going to be taken. Remember, Agabus, they said, don't go to Jerusalem. You're out of your head. You're crazy to go to Jerusalem because you're going to get in big trouble. Here's what Paul said. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He said, I'd rather my bones be broken than that my heart be broken. My heart, the Holy Spirit is in my heart, and I, don't, and I will protect that with my existence until the day I die. And he did. Well, remember that many of the Jewish democracy cried one thing, then another. They cried out angrily here when they grabbed Paul. What did they say? Away with him. And you can bet, knowing their old Hebrewism linguistic capabilities, they didn't just say it one time. They were probably chanting it so loud you could hear it a hundred miles away. Away with him, away with him, away with him. What does that remind you of? Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Once again, the stones in Jerusalem talk out again. They cry out again. Crucify Him! They cried out angrily away with Him, and they want Him gone. Remember, crucify Him. As the Roman Nazi brigade detains Paul, they have not even figured out who He is yet. 
They haven't even figured out who he is yet, and they're already trying to kill him. Think about this. Look at the next verses. They don't even know who he is. Claudius Lucius, he comes up and he says, well, maybe he's an Egyptian. Well, maybe he's Greek. Maybe he's one of these insurrectionists. Maybe he's the Egyptian many years ago that came in and had 4,000 of our people sought after and killed, and they never found him. Well, according to Felix the governor, the governor was supposed to have killed this Egyptian. This really happened. It was an insurrectionist that came in and killed 4,000 people in and around Jerusalem. And Felix was supposed to have taken this Egyptian and killed him and executed him because of this onslaught and this massacre. Well, they turn around and say, and they plant this seed in, that, in the mind of Claudius Lysias, the, the chief captain, and they say to him, you know, we never found the body of this guy that was supposed to be an Egyptian that killed all these people. Maybe this is him. Well, they figure if they say that, then immediately they would execute him and say, hey, we're not going to mess with us. But it didn't happen. In fact, what happens is Paul bloodied, swelled, bruised, and in horrible condition comes back, and now he takes over. And he has the ears of everybody, hundreds of people standing around. They carried him up over their, uh, over their heads, set him down on the stairs right there in the palace, and he says, I beg of you, remember Romans 1, no, Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice unto the Lord. I beg you. And he says to the chief captain, after they beat him and they did this to him, he says, I beg you, can I say something? Do you mind if I open my mouth just for a minute? The chief captain says, Canst thou speak Greek? No doubt one of the unbelieving Jewish priests grabbed the chief captain quietly with absolute no proof to accuse Paul of insurrection against the Roman Empire. Then he says, Are you an Egyptian? And Paul rectifies his mistake their mistake, I mean, concerning the accusations against him by informing them that he is not a vagabond. He says, I'm not a scoundrel. I'm not an Egyptian like Pharaoh who enjoyed killing Jews for, for sport. He tells them that he is from Tarsus of Cilicia with an honest education, a university. Tarsus was known for being a university. That's where very high education was. Another thing that they underestimated that they didn't know about Paul is under the teachings of Gamaliel, and we will learn about that in the first few verses in chapter 22, under the teachings of Gamaliel, Paul had the equivalent of a PhD in law. He knew about due process. He knew about how the law was supposed to give somebody a fair chance to at least explain or have some kind of representation. He has no lawyer. He has no one to stand in there with him. So he says, can I at least say something to defend myself? And he does it. He begs leave of the mob and Lysias acquiesces to Paul and lets him have a most uncomfortable, sorry type of pulpit on the stairs of the castle after he's bloodied, bruised, and he's swelled up over a harsh beating. Paul says, I am a citizen of no mean city. And he says, please let me speak. He speaks on the stairs and he tells them, I used to be a Judaizer, but it doesn't end there. Remember back a little ways, they start beating him, and he goes, he said he brings one of the wardens over, whatever he says, I think you need to know something. My father was a Roman. What do you think about that? And now all of a sudden, that had to send chills up their spine. Paul says, I am a Roman citizen. He says that I was a Jew, 
And then as we see in the next chapter, which we're going to look at next week, I'm a fa- I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so the Romans give the floor to Paul. Now I want to end this. We're going to end this here. and I- I'm not going to stop until I read these last verses because it would be horrible to not give this benedic- benediction in my opinion. But what about mobs? Mobs are bad. They're bad. We see that in the rioting. Oregon, we see it here in Baltimore. They're bad. We see that today the mobs that are out there and these wicked self-appointed politicians, these self-appointed judges that judge, they love Greek philosophy and they love atheism. Let me read you a quote from a famous atheist. What about mobs? Even the wicked atheist Frederick Nietzsche said, the, the mob is the most ruthless of tyrants. Those were his own words. Thomas Jefferson. Now, whenever you see this on Fox News, please remember this. When all these idiots say, oh, we're having democracy 2024 election. We're not in a democracy. This constitution was a republic. Thomas Jefferson says, a democracy is nothing more than mob rule where 51% of the people may take away the rights of the other 49. Predicated on those that count the votes. Right? Thomas Jefferson. Here's what James Madison said. A pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person can admit of no cure for the mischiefs of faction. And Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers in page number 10, the framers designed the American constitutional system not as a direct democracy, but as a representative republic, where enlightened delegates of the people would serve the public's good. They also built into the Constitution a series of cooling mechanisms intended to inhibit the formulation of passionate factions to ensure that reasonable majorities would prevail. Madison spoke out against mob rule. He said that the people, the good of the people, is supposed to be honored. And how can they even dare to take away our Second Amendment? How can they dare to take the guns out of the people's hands? Look at the impact. You go all the way back and we'll finish here. Look at the impact of the mobs of the people going after Paul by force and the rioting lies. They became the new normal and the truth is punished and executed. That's what happens in mob rule. The truth is punished and executed, but it can never be extinguished. Paul said himself, you can do nothing against the truth before the truth. That's a quote. Well, look at the impact. Well, we'll go back to the Old Testament. Remember, there was a fiery furnace with mob rule by the mobs led by Nebuchadnezzar. When all the instruments would play, the sackbut and the, and, the, and the flutes and everything was over, over 3,000 of these little cult leaders and cult members, including governors and presidents, were supposed to kneel down at the feet of Nebuchadnezzar at this big idol that he had created. But there's always a remnant. Daniel 3.16 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we don't have to think about this twice. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. That's Paul, and I hope it's us. Because that's what Satan wants us to do, is turn our back on Christ. And he'll use every means to get it. And it works. It really does. 
Just remember all the way to the death, Paul never flinched. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee, Lord, for all the words that Thou hast given us to learn together. Thank Thee for the wonderful correspondence, these verses that Thou hast etched in our hearts. And we see the faithful missionary journey of Paul the Apostle, one man, and he goes forward. And Lord, Thou held his hand all the way till when he was executed and then invited him and brought him right up into Thy kingdom. What a faithful warrior for Christ, for for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank Thee that we can read about and learn about him today. And I pray, Lord, as we see as he's on the stairs in Jerusalem next week and he speaks about two major events that, Lord, cause us all to be studying, reading this this week and preparing our hearts for this because this is a wonderful, wonderful gospel that's given. I pray that thou wouldst bless Pastor Britton today. And we, Lord, we thank thee, Lord, for carrying him down here to hand him to us that he'll be the, the wonderful herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this pulpit and bless our faithful brother and give him wonderful words of life to give and that souls would be saved and our hearts would be opened up and be joyful to say it's been in thy house. And for those that are ailing today, that can't be here, that are not feeling well, Lord, we just pray for healing for them. And just thank thee for thy church glorious today and thy Sabbath day. And I pray that thou wilt put it on our hearts to keep it holy. And all these things we ask thy name we pray. Amen.